navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. I welcome everybody back. Seems like a long time it's been since we've all been together, but uh, we were last together in July. Uh, I hope and trust many of you uh, have participated in my past series on trial skills and catastrophic automobile accidents and personal injury cases. And today we are kicking off my newest series, which uh, is the start of, now I'm gonna be getting into some more specifics uh, areas of practice. And I thought construction accident cases would be a really good one because in a lot of the one-on-ones I've been doing, which I hope you'll sign up for if you haven't already, just go to the uh, this hand, the mentoresq.com to do a complimentary 30-minute Zoom with me, get to know each other. Um, and a lot of lawyers have been asking me questions and chatting about uh, some construction accident cases that they have. So this series is going to be a four-parter. Uh, we're going to start this month and continue up until the beginning of December, and it's going to be all about litigating construction accident injury cases. Uh, as you probably know, my routine by now is to spend the first hour trying to share with you as much information as I can, and then uh, that'll be from one to two, and then the next half hour will be uh, Q&A. And while we're going along, uh, if any questions, comments, guidance that you have, we are a community here. I don't profess to know everything by, by no stretch of the imagination, do I? Uh, I share what I know uh, and hope that uh, you'll get some takeaways from it and it will be helpful. But I know there happen to be some scholars uh, on this webinar uh, attending uh, in the area of construction law. And if uh, anybody would like to share, just put stuff in the, um, in the chat in the uh, Q&A. Uh, I think the Q&A is probably best. Uh, and uh, I will address questions at the end uh, or maybe shortly after we take some of our breaks um, and uh, look forward to your participation. So let's get to it. Um, what we're going to talk about today is initially um, an overview of the law that applies to these types of cases. So when you start thinking about taking on a case or looking into a case or how to handle one of these accident cases, if you haven't before, I think it's a really good starting point to go over the basic laws that you need to be familiar with. And today is gonna to be just an overview because um, the laws that apply here, we can, you know, they're, they're subjects of books and treatises and scholarly articles that we could spend hours and hours. So this is gonna be a general overview that we'll have. And we're gonna discuss primarily the three New York State labor laws. and. I know many of my podcast listeners who listen to this uh, and are listening right now are from all over the country and different parts of the world, which is pretty cool. Uh, many of my lectures uh, can be applied to other states, other venues. This one on the New York labor law is going to be pretty specific to New York state because every state is going to have their own laws in place or not in place to protect workers. And fortunately for construction workers in New York state, uh, there's some really good laws on the books uh, that are designed to protect them uh, in the dangerous jobs that they do. And these are known as the New York State Labor Laws. And today we're going to talk about the three primary laws uh, that are always pled in the complaints in these cases and become the topic of summary judgment motions, all of which we'll continue to talk about during the series. And it's going to start off with Section 200, 
Then we're going to talk about section 241, subdivision six, which uh, involves the industrial code. And we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about the famous, uh, the most famous of all the New York state labor laws. And that is section 240, subdivision one, uh, commonly known as the scaffold law. And uh, we will get to that. There's all kinds of stuff to talk about uh, when it comes to 241 sub six, the scaffold law. Uh, and it's been the subject of so many court of appeals cases and summary judgment motions and fact patterns. And if you're hoping to get some clarity and answers as to what fact pattern falls into what scenario, is it a good 241-6 case? Is it a good 240 subdivision one case? Well, I'm not going to be able to give you that answer so quickly because, frankly, you give the same fact pattern to the first department and they'll say it's a 240 subdivision one case on behalf of the plaintiff. Granted, you give that same one to the fourth department, it's dismissed, it's not a case. So there's not a lot of clarity in a lot of the different facts that can arise at a construction accident site, which we'll, we'll talk about. But let's start with um, section 200. Now, by the way, in your materials, uh, there's a lot there in your materials that uh, I provided for today. And I find the best way to look through the materials, I'm gonna give you a page number when I'm talking about something. I don't like to screen share. I'm gonna screen share once in this whole presentation uh, when we get to 240. But um, on the materials, you're gonna find, I actually gave you the laws so you can see them because it's important to read them and know what they say. So section 200, which we'll talk about first, uh, is on page 16 of the materials. And my page number is a PDF page number. I think the materials are 192 pages. So you'll go to page 16 for section 200. Uh, and that's gonna be the first one we're gonna talk about. And I'll point out the page numbers if you wanna jot them down as we go along, but don't get too focused on reading them now. I'm gonna give you the overview and then take your time to yourself to read through the materials at your convenience. So generally section 200 is sort of the, the easy one, the stepchild, the, the, the not dramatic one. Uh, there's usually not a lot of case law on 200. You wanna think about labor law section 200 as sort of the regular negligence statute that you cite. So if you think of a regular negligence case where someone departs from uh, the standard of care and failing to do what should have been done or did something that shouldn't have been done, that's what you should think of when you think of labor law section 200. It's the general negligence case that applies to um, construction sites. And it's entitled the general duty to protect health and safety of employees. So when you read the language of section 200, it's, it'll talk about equipment being properly placed and workers being properly protected. But the big difference between 200 uh, and the other sections we're gonna talk about, sections 241 subdivision six and section 240 subdivision one, is that section 200 is regular negligence. So there's no non-delegable duty. It doesn't impose liability on owners and general contractors in, in any special way. Uh, it's really sort of your fallback one. Uh, it's your fallback statute that if your other two statutes get dismissed, on summary judgment, if you get thrown out on your 241 subdivision six and you get thrown out on your uh, 240 subdivision one, you still have 200, which is basically saying they were negligent. The owners, the general contractors, whatever 
facts you have in your case, if they don't fall within one of the non-delegable duty statutes, which are the other two, which we'll get to, then you have section 200. And it's helpful because sometimes you just don't have the facts and you can't make out the case under the other statute. So it's important to plead 200. In our next part next month, I'm gonna give you a sample complaint, show you how to plead these different causes of action, but you always wanna have section 200 in there. Um, now, the, the key to a section 200 case is that you have to show the party that you wanna impose liability upon has control and supervision of the work being done. All right, so forget about out of possession owners and landlords and general contractors or people that weren't directing the work. To get 200, that section imposed as liability, uh, you have to show that the party that you're suing, whether it is the owner or the subcontractor or the contractor, they were involved. You know, they had responsibility. They were controlling, directing the work, and they messed up. Okay, uh, they either did something they shouldn't have, but more likely failed to give the protections that they were supposed to. Uh, and you also have to show notice if it's involving a condition. It's not a strict liability statute. So 200, again, just keep that in mind. You always want to plead it. You'll get a complaint from me next month to use. Don't give it too much thought. Just think of it as sort of the catch-all and sort of your backup if the two more powerful labor law statutes uh, are not uh, working for you either under the facts or the judge uh, throws them out. Let's get on to some of the more juicier uh, laws, which uh, next we're going to go to Section 241. Okay, now section 241, that's at page 17 of your materials. And this is what I like to call the industrial code um, labor law or statute. And the reason is, is that in labor law 241, uh, there's different subdivisions, okay? And the one that comes into play in a construction accident case uh, where someone is injured on a job site is section 241 subdivision six. And if you've been handling these cases, as long as I have 25, 26 years, you're gonna reel all these statues off uh, just as easily as I am. You're gonna know it in your sleep. Uh, you're gonna know a 241-6, a 241 uh, case. You're gonna know what all this is very easily. But take a look and you'll see the statute of 241 subdivision six. Now, what this statute is, it's a strong statute, not as strong as the next one we're going to get to, which is uh, the scaffold law, but 241 subdivision six basically says that if you can prove through your facts that um, a condition of the industrial code, okay, was violated, not complied with at a work site, you can establish that specific provision of the industrial code uh, that uh, wasn't complied with and caused a plaintiff's injury, that is going to allow you to win summary judgment, or it could be a jury question sometimes, but at least uh, make a good argument to hold the defendant liable uh, for failure to provide a safe work environment that resulted in an injured party's injuries. And so what you do is you look through the industrial code. All right. And the industrial code I've attached, and I recommend that you save it, maybe save it as a separate PDF. Um, 
The way you do that is see what page numbers it runs from one to two, you go to print, print that, save it as a separate document. But I put the whole industrial code, which is known as part three, I put that in your materials because it's really important. That's going to be your index for looking through and finding out which provision applies to the fact pattern in your case. And um, I have the industrial code part 23 uh, which is the part that applies in a 241.6 case uh, in the materials. And that starts on page 19, okay? And what you'll see is it runs from page 19 to like page, I think it runs to like page 177. It's a, it's a very big body of laws. And there's all these subdivisions that apply to whether it's demolition work going on, const uh, whether it's blasting, uh, aerial lifts, um, passageways, uh, all kinds of stuff, pretty much anything you could think about because there's so many different variables at construction sites. We don't know if they're putting up iron beams high up in the air. Are they putting in a new subfloor? Uh, are there planks down? Are there openings that people can fall through? Are they painting on a bridge? There's so many different areas of construction uh, that are out there where people can be injured in. And what's helpful is, is that this statute, 241 Subdivision 6, the Industrial Code Law, as I like to call it, this has a lot more teeth than 200 because it can hold the general contractor at the job site and the owner liable with a non-delegable duty. And you're going to hear this term non-delegable a lot in the cases and when you're talking about uh, construction accident cases and the laws that apply to them. And the idea with a non-delegable statute, like the 241 subdivision six and the scaffold law, 240 subdivision one, is that New York State's legislative body has decided we are gonna put the pressure on the owner of these sites and on the general contractor to make sure the site is safe. And it's a non-delegable duty. That means you can't delegate. You can't say, well, I hired a subcontractor to come in and do uh, the flooring. And I expected them to do a good job and make sure that their employees had, uh, you know, the proper uh, protection down to cover floor openings and not get hurt. Um, but what's happened is, is in New York, it probably is in most places, is that there are a lot of sketchy subcontractors out there. And they're not, they don't care too much about safety. They're just getting the day laborers. A lot of them are not legal citizens. They're people that are willing to work without talking about, uh, you know, complaining for lack of safety devices. Uh, they're not going to say, hey, I'm not going up on that roof unless you give me a harness and you give me a scaffold. They're going to say, hey, I need a job for 20 bucks an hour, 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks. I'll go up on that roof and I'll do the work. OK, so the problem is, is that if the if in New York, if some big company that owns, you know, uh, uh, is putting up a high rise in New York City and they start subcontracting and make it that there's so many subcontractors below the general contractor and they put the blame on the subcontractor to be responsible, the subcontractors just aren't. And so they're, they may not have proper insurance. They may not uh, be up to speed on proper protective devices. So properly, in my opinion, uh, the laws in New York put that onus on those in charge, the owners and the general contractors. 
they're the big big ticket uh, teams that have the resources that are supposed to know the law. They can employ special site safety managers and supervisors whose job is, is to walk around a big construction site or even a small construction site and make sure everything's safe. Um, and so it's non-delegable. That way, if you do have one of these shady subcontractors who's not providing protection for the workers and a worker gets injured, and you can establish that something within the industrial code uh, was violated, um, then you can go right after the owner and or the general contractor. You have your pick uh, and you will get liability against both if you can establish it and then they can fight it out amongst themselves. Now, there's a whole nother area of law in defending these cases. I'm a plaintiff's lawyer. I don't defend cases, uh, but I have a lot of friends. Many of you are, are tuning in and I thank you on the defense side and the job when you're a defense lawyer is, um, you know, moving the loss to someone else uh, to, to cover. So you're hoping that you have good contracts between everyone so that even if I bring a case and I get a 241 sub six uh, judgment against the owner, that owner's hoping to have a really good contract with the general contractor where the general contractor is indemnifying the owner. If you get hit, we'll pay. And the general contractor then needs to have good contracts with the subcontractors. So the general contractors are saying, if I get hit because you subcontractor are not putting proper safety into place with your employees, you're going to pay me and you're going to have enough insurance. So that's why all of these indemnification contracts are really important. It's not uncommon at a big construction site to have an owner, a general contractor, multiple subcontractors, subcontractors subcontracting out to another subcontractor. So when you get these cases as a defense attorney, you're getting all those contracts right away and seeing, you know, who's indemnifying who, who you can, you know, get to cover for your client with insurance coverage. And a lot of these cases get really messy, really fast. I find often on the defense side between the indemnification contracts, who's going to pay, who has insurance, who doesn't have insurance. So as a plaintiff's lawyer, I try and learn all of this so that I can roll up my sleeves and try and be the, the broker amongst the defense lawyers to make sure I have the proper defendant uh, who can pay the tab at the end of the day. So ultimately, that's how we come around to these non-delegable statutes. So this uh, 241 subdivision six. So what you always want to do in any construction accident case, get as many facts as possible, get a fact pad, and then you do all your research, you call me up or your colleagues or the lawyer in the office next to you, say, do you think this is a 241-6 case? Do you think it's a 240 subdivision one case based on these facts? And you hit the books, you hit these statutes, you hit the industrial code and you look up uh, the, the specific provisions to try and see if they apply to your case. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is POD318. Again, that's POD318. So I took a quick look at some of the questions. I'll get to uh, most of them towards the end of the program. Uh, but as far as I apologize to his honor, Judge Heyman, who was kind enough to uh, provide me with some of his scholarly articles. And I did attach his uh, one of his articles that was published uh, on the scaffold law uh, to page 180 
of your materials, but it's not a complete copy. Uh, and I think that uh, the part that I provided to the Academy, uh, and somehow it just didn't have it all. So uh, perhaps if his honor consented to Michelle uh, during the CLE or uh, at a later time, she can provide it to everybody. I apologize, that is my fault. Uh, and I'll have some more of Judge Heyman's uh, scholarly materials in the materials for the next parts to come as well. I'll right, fix so, it, I'll fix okay. it, no worries. Thank you. So here's how it works. I'm gonna use an example that I'll talk about probably throughout this series of a case I had with my client, Gary. And Gary was working in New York City as an iron worker on a new tower going up. And part of his job was to go up uh, and bolt certain steel beams together. And he had to bring one of the engineers on site up uh, in a lift to check and make sure everything looked good. So he sets up a, an aerial lift on the ground in the workspace. They get into the basket and the basket goes up and the lift goes up and up and up and he's in it and he's uh, clipped in with his harness to the rail and uh, so is the engineer. And as he goes up, he's about 20 feet in the air and the lift starts to wobble and then it tips over and they come crashing down to the ground and he gets very, very seriously injured. So when, you know, I'll talk about that case uh, throughout the parts ahead because it, it highlights a lot and we ended up litigating that case up to the first department. So I'll talk about the issues involved as we go on in the series. But initially, when I see that case and you get a fact pattern like that, you're saying, okay, we've got height, uh, we've got an aerial lift. Uh, let's first look and see, we know we're gonna plead section 200, the common law section, because he was hurt, a lift tipped over, somebody's probably at fault here. Uh, but then let's see, is this a 241 subdivision six case? Is there perhaps a violation of one or more um, of the uh, sections of the industrial code, part 23? So when you look at part 23, you're gonna see it's a long, long list of all different areas. And I think maybe what I'll do is um, I'll share my screen just briefly so that we're all literally on the same page and I could show you what I'm talking about. So I'm gonna share my screen, Michelle, just let me know if uh, for some reason it doesn't come up. Right now you should be seeing where it says part 23, and this is on page 19 of your materials. Um, and by the way, if you see where my cursor is up top here where I bold 19, um, you can type in any page number that I refer to. Let's say we wanted to go to 17 to see uh, the statute itself. There it is, there's 241 is the statute. You can scroll through it. And now I'm telling you go to page 19 for the industrial code, you type in 19 and it goes right there. So it's a really great thing if you open up a PDF that you can go right to the page. And what you'll see in here, and these are hyperlinked, but I don't think these are gonna work. Uh, so don't worry too much about these hyperlinks, uh, but you're gonna see all these subparts, 23.1, and you're gonna see lumber nail fastening, electrical hazards, safety belts, uh, life nets, catch platforms, ladders and ladder ways, okay? Um, approvals of materials. So right away, I'm just looking at this, I'm saying, oh, okay, in my case, maybe uh, I'm curious about, should there have been a life net, maybe a harness? Let's see what else, I'll keep scrolling through. And then you get into the construction operations, demolition operations, excavating. This wasn't an excavating and it wasn't a fall from a scaffold, but if it was, you'd wanna look at all these different scaffolds. So I'm gonna keep scrolling through, material hoisting, 
Mobile crane seems like we're getting closer. Maybe this was a mobile crane or power operate equipment. Hey, look, here's lifts and fork trucks. So I'm gonna to wanna to look at 23.98, okay? Uh, and then I'm gonna go down to all of these and I'm gonna read them and see what it says. Another thing that you can do in Adobe, which I do in this industrial code, is you can do a search. You go up to the search box and let's say I type in the word lift, okay? It's gonna scan this document and everywhere it says lift is gonna show up. You just click next. Material hoisting, well, this wasn't really happening. Okay, what's going on here? It's, you know, lifting, isn't it? Lifting, 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 right? So you can scroll through until maybe you'll get to something like no load shall be lifted. Uh, let's see if we have something about an aerial lift. Here we go, lifts and forks, okay? Then I'll scroll through here and take a look about, you know, what I can find about lifts. Didn't look like anything too much there. This is a lift truck. So I'll keep looking. And then maybe I don't find it. Maybe I don't find something. So I'm saying, all right, I need to fix it. Maybe I'm gonna look for aerial lift. Let's see if there's a match there. Saying no exact match. So it's not there. So I'm gonna have to look deeper and see maybe it's a different name. Okay, it brought me all the way to the end of mine. So I'm gonna go back to page 119. All right. But let's say someone, one of the statues that I like to refer to in this is when a construction worker is walking down part of the, uh, the construction site and slips on something and gets injured. So in the industrial code, I've learned that there's a subdivision that's called slipping hazards. So I'll go to slipping. Let's hope I can find something here. Here we go. Roofing bracket, no. Slipping hazards, okay? So this, if you scroll up, is in the industrial code 23-1.7, subdivision D, okay, slipping hazards. It says here, employer shall not permit anyone to use a floor, passageway, walkway, scaffold, or elevated working surface, which is in a slippery condition. Ice, snow, water, grease, other substances may cause slippery footing and it shall be removed, okay? A case once where my guy's up on an elevated part of a building uh, and he's walking outside on a, on a subroof and he's carrying big weights, counterweights, and he slips and falls and uh, injures his back, has to have a spinal fusion. And we cited this, 23-1.7 subdivision D, as uh, to support our uh, claim under 241 subdivision 6. And it worked. And we got summary judgment on that, okay? Now the key is there's so many different things in here that you're gonna scroll through and look through. Hazardous opening, I've used this one before. You ever ever come across a case where someone's working at a job site and falls into a hole? Maybe there's plywood that's not improperly and they step on it and it opens up and they drop down 10 feet and they break something. You're gonna to wanna to cite this, every hazardous opening shall be guarded by a substantial cover fastened into place or by a safety rail. So the industrial code is just, it's a great, um, it's a great resource uh, to scan and look at and take your time with uh, when you have a case to see if your case falls within it, because then that's how you get your 241 subdivision six liability, all right? And just because it's in the industrial code though, doesn't mean it's gonna be the basis for liability 
under 241 subdivision six. It has to be known as a specific or concrete provision of the industrial code. So for example, the slipping hazard that I just cited or the uh, falling hazards, those are considered concrete and specific. They're not general, okay? Um, those can be a basis of a 241 subdivision six. For example, uh, section uh, 1.5 of the industrial code, let's see if we can find this here, um, talks about, looking at it on my notes here before I share it with you. Section 1.5 talks about general duties, general responsibilities. So I'm gonna share my screen again, just to show you the difference. And here, so health and safety protection required. You know, it's talking about making sure that they have what they need for the working conditions. This has been held to be a non-specific subdivision of the rule, 23-1.5a. So this would not, you can't use this to form the basis of liability. So the question of what's considered specific and concrete and what's not has been addressed by the courts. Uh, and there are plenty of cases out there. And a good way to do it is you can go on your Lexis or Westlaw and research a specific section of the industrial code. Just type in section 23-1.5a or 23-1.7d and uh, see what comes up, see what cases come up. There will most likely be them. Chances are if you search really hard and no cases come up, it's probably not specific enough. If the cases do come up, they usually say that it is specific enough. Another really good thing to use is that is the annotations. Um, I did not give you the annotations for 241 subdivision six uh, or all of the industrial code and its annotations, but you can find them online and they're searchable. And annotations are great because you can search those as well. And you can find, if you look for the annotations under slipping hazards and see a cases that may have cited that, whether it's concrete or not. There's a whole body of case law on section 241 subdivision six that talks about uh, which provisions are specific and which aren't. So when you get a fact pattern, whether it be a slipping hazard or my guy up in the lift, you're gonna look through the industrial code. You're gonna plead, we'll talk about the next part, 241 subdivision six. And then you're gonna allege violations of every single subdivision of rule 20, uh, part 23 of the industrial code, okay? And that'll be in your bill of particulars when the defense asks you in a demand for bill of particulars to cite every law, statute, ordinance that was violated. Uh, usually we say we like to refer those uh, to the judge at the time of trial uh, to determine what's applicable. Uh, but you wanna make sure in a labor law case like this that you throw the kitchen sink in, specific or non-specific, because you never wanna move for summary judgment and then have a defendant raise the issue that you've never alleged a violation of that code until the first time um, at the time of moving for summary judgment, okay? So let me stop my share. I think I did stop my share. All right, so again, this is non-delegable duty, all right? This is non-delegable, which means that if you can establish that the condition existed, and you can connect it to the happening of the accident. So if your client is a plaintiff, falls through an opening at a construction site, I don't care whose fault it was, 
you allege a violation of 241 subdivision six, and you cite part 23 of the industrial code, 1.7 D slipping hazard, uh, and you put that in your bill of particulars. And if you can prove that factually that that condition existed, um, then uh, you go to uh, the owner and the general contractor. They have a non-delegable duty. They can't say, not my fault. My subcontractor was doing that work. They were supposed to uh, put down sand or dry up the wet floor or properly cover the opening in the ground. Um, sorry, non-delegable. It's your job. You need to have a site safety superintendent, which on most big jobs, a general contractor or a owner will employ, whose job is it, it is specifically to walk the site, to look for these problems. So they can say to the sub, time out, stop all work until you uh, fix that condition, put up that rail, secure that board over the opening, put up a lift, get on a safety harness. So you'll hear terms like site super, safety uh, advisor. You always wanna find out and we'll get to it in the part where we talk about depositions, who's in charge of safety. And you'll usually get a concession from the owner or the general contractor saying we are. That's why we have a site safety person uh, or a site safety superintendent at the job site. And you're usually going to want the deposition of that person. Okay. And again, non-delegable duty. Now, a big difference between 241 subdivision six, which we've been talking about with the industrial code, and what we're going to talk about next in the remaining 15 minutes of the hour, the scaffold law, which I know you're all waiting for me to talk about, the big difference is, is that although 241 has more bite than 200 because it's non-delegable duty for the owner and the general contractor, it's not strict liability. You still got to prove it and they can still argue comparative fault. Okay, yeah, we were supposed to protect that opening and not make it so somebody could step through and fall down 10 feet, but, you know, the, the, all the workers at the site were told before you go near any plywood, uh, make sure you look for any openings. And if you see any, don't step in or don't go on the plywood. Uh, make sure it's secure before you step on it. If not, report it up. And uh, plaintiff, he was told that and he didn't do it. So even though he stepped on it, he should have checked first. So there's some comparative fault there. So that's all fair game in 241 subdivision six. It's non-delegable, that's the good news. You get the owner and the, and the general contractor in if you can prove a violation of a specific provision of the industrial code, but you still have to fight off uh, an argument of comparative fault, okay? Uh, but you don't need to prove notice to the general contractor, okay, or the owner in a situation, again, unlike 200. It's got more bite. It's non-delegable. It's their job proactively to make sure everything is safe for the workers, that's why construction accident cases are good plaintiff's cases and tough for the defense because these laws are really strong to protect the workers and hold the, the, big, the big shots, the owners in the GC liable if someone's injured. Ultimately, it's their responsibility to make sure their workers are safe. All right, now in the remaining time, let's get to the big one. The one that is by in a way, the largest uh, subject of numerous court decisions as Judge Heyman has uh, spent so many hours and so much of his time writing scholarly articles on New York State Court of Appeals cases, appellate division cases. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty amongst the departments. Sometimes the Court of Appeals chimes in, sometimes they don't. 
Sometimes they throw all of us a curveball, and we're not really sure what they mean uh, because they're, we don't know if they're being really specific to the facts of a specific case or whether they want that to apply broadly. So it's a tricky area. Um, you can always throw out a fact pattern and not know whether it would fall into it being a 240 subdivision one case or not, depending on the appellate department you're in. But uh, we do the best we can as litigators. And, uh, and let me talk to you a little bit about the statute, okay? So the first thing is section 240 is on page 178 of your materials. And I'm gonna share that with you right now, just to point out some important parts of it. Now, this is the scaffolding law that I'm sharing with you, okay? So labor law 240, here we are. Scaffolding and other devices for use of employees, all right? The highlighted area, this is the good stuff. This is the important stuff that you're gonna have to prove and show that your fact pattern falls into this uh, subdivision, this paragraph of 241. So first of all, it's not gonna apply to a one or two family house. We have a lot of those in New York City, especially in the outer boroughs, um, you know, Queens, Brooklyn, you'll see a lot of one and two family homes. Uh, they may even be co-ops. Uh, with, with two different people, two families living in it. But basically, if it's a private home uh, or a home shared amongst two families, this statute does not apply, all right? This, the legislature doesn't want to come down hard and put strict liability on all of us as homeowners, right? You have your house, the contractors come to repair the roof, uh, you hire someone, a roofer, they go, the guys working on the roof don't have, they're not tied off, they fall off the roof and get badly injured. You're not gonna be liable under labor law 240 subdivision one, because you're a homeowner. You're not a commercial contractor. You're not a business owner. This isn't a, a corporate commercial type project going on. And you're not, you might know after this uh, webinar, but most homeowners have no idea what's required as far as safety and harnesses and railings. They expect they're hiring a roofer. The roofer, right, is gonna make sure that things are properly safe and it's not your problem. So there's a carve out, all right? So this law does not apply to one and two family homes. That's the yellow highlight that I have there. Unless, unless you can show that that homeowner was directly involved in directing the work. So if I'm up there on the roof and I'm like, hey, I know a lot about this. You guys put on that harness, you tie off here. I'm only letting the work proceed. If you do this and you do that, if depositions can establish that kind of control and work, then maybe you can hold that person in. We had a case once where it was an architect doing work on a, his own house he was building. And we made the argument that uh, labor law 240 applied because he was directing and controlling uh, the work. And he, he knew these contractors had worked with them on commercial projects, but that's a rare circumstance. So then look at the sort of pinkish highlight for 240 subdivision one, the scaffold law to apply. It has to be during the course of the erection, demolition, repairing, altering, painting, cleaning, appointing of a building or structure. So sometimes you may have an issue, man, does this fall into the labor law? Uh, there was a, you know, the building I live in, I live in a, a rental building with 12 floors and lots of apartments. And uh, the, the superintendent in the building was on a ladder and uh, he was up there doing some cleaning on the wall um, and he fell, is that a labor law case? Well, let's look here. It says erection, demolition, repairing, altering, painting, cleaning, or pointing of a building or structure. All right, if you can argue he was cleaning in that building when he fell, 
from a height, then maybe this does apply. What if he's changing a light bulb? Does that apply? Hmm, I don't know. I don't think so. Looking at this statute, I think if he goes up on a ladder to change a light bulb and falls, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure unless perhaps we can argue this was part of an altering or it was a repair. All right, so you name it, it's been out there and there's more to come as far as weird fact patterns. But there's tons of cases where the sole issue is whether or not the scaffold law 240 subdivision one, what we're reading right now, applies to the facts of a given case. The plaintiff's arguing this is, this is altering, this is repairing. And the defense is saying this isn't altering or repairing, he's changing a light bulb. Labor law is not meant to protect people who just go up to change a light bulb. All right, so you've got to be careful about that. All right. And then it's saying that if they are doing erection, demolition, repairing, et cetera, all right, then the contractors, the owners, and their agents, owner and GC, everybody at the job site, but the owner and GC are responsible. They are responsible for the stuff in green here. Scaffolding, hoists, stays, ladders, slings, hangers, pulleys, braces, irons, ropes, all of that as to give proper protection to the person employed, okay? Now, that's the statute. And that paragraph right there has been the source of hundreds if not thousands of motions and appellate decisions. Is it a 240 subdivision one case? Does it apply? Um, was there proper protection in place? Was it not proper protection? Now the statute is a height related statute or gravity related statute. Section 240 subdivision one only comes into play in two types of scenarios. One, the worker falls from a height. Two, something that's either being lifted, hoisted, kept in place, used on the construction site, falls from a height onto a worker, okay? So either the worker falls or something falls onto the worker. It has to be a height or gravity, gravity excuse me, related condition for this statute 240 subdivision one to apply. So getting back to my cases, the one I talked about with the guy carrying the weights and slipping on the water, is that a 240 subdivision one case? Well, we tried to argue it was. He was up out on a roof, high up on the ground. He fell down. Uh, he's six feet tall. By the time his back hit, that was several feet. Um, we didn't have much luck on the 240 subdivision one case, but we did have luck on the 241 subdivision six, okay? The slipping hazard. What about my guy who's up on the lift and the lift tips over and he falls? Well, certainly it's not a one family home, right? It's construction of a new high rise. That certainly falls within the statute. And he fell to the ground, definitely height related, fell 20 feet. So the argument there is, was the lift properly placed to give him protection? Did he have the right harness on? He was clipped off to the device. Do we have a case? I'm not gonna tell you how it ended up, but I can tell you there was a big debate, okay? But if you can prove all the elements, height related, they weren't provided with proper fall protection and they were injured as a result, then it's a slam dunk on liability. It's absolute. No comparative fault, no contributory negligence. The owner and the GC are responsible, whether it was their specific job to make sure that person was tied off or protected or not. 
That's 240 subdivision one. And there's only one defense to it, okay? And that's what we call sole proximate cause. Contributory negligence cannot be argued. You can't say in my situation, well, the guy should have set up the lift better. You know, he was negligent and not setting up the lift and maybe that's why it tipped over. Nope, that's negligence. That doesn't apply. You have to say the only way this accident happens is if my client who was up in the lift that tipped over was the sole proximate cause that it was, but for him, it wouldn't have happened. It was only could have been his fault and nobody else's. And that is usually the argument that happens in these 240 subdivision one cases. The plaintiffs argue, hey, that's just negligence. You're arguing that our guy may have been slightly contributory negligence, but he's not the sole proximate cause. You guys violated the statute. That's, that's what caused it. You're, you're liable. And the defense says, well, if your client had set everything upright, then the accident would have been here. Of course, he's the sole proximate cause. We both make our pitch. We cite similar cases that we can find to, to bolster our argument. And we see what happens with the trial court judge and then it need be up to the appellate department. We'll talk about how, how you argue those cases. Uh, but sole proximate cause is the only defense. Uh, a sole proximate cause can be a recalcitrant worker, can be a sole proximate cause. So the evidence shows that uh, a person was up on a scaffold and it's undisputed that he was given a harness, told to click in, the site super walked by, saw him, he was clicked in, up on a scaffold with a safety harness, everything was fine. But let's say while he's working, he says, I don't need this harness. I've been doing this 20 years. I've never fallen. It gets in my way. He unclicks it, continues to work and falls. That's a sole proximate cause. That's a recalcitrant worker. They're not using the safety vices that they were provided. Okay. So that's the only defense. If you can make out the case uh, of everything else, that would be a sole proximate cause defense. So we'll talk about if you're on the plaintiff or defense side in the depositions, what's important to get, you need to go into these depositions focus. That's gonna be part three, making sure you get the answers uh, to all of these areas. So you're always thinking summary judgment. That's where these cases all go, folks. They rarely do these cases go to trial. Uh, they ultimately go to summary judgment and either the case is fully dismissed by all parts uh, because you don't make out a case uh, for whatever reason, or some parts are dismissed. Maybe you lose on 240 subdivision one, but you get 241 subdivision six or vice versa. So many of these cases do get decided, or if you win all of it, then the cases usually resolve or it's a damages only trial. Um, but most of these cases uh, go to motion practice uh, and then see what happens from there, see what the trial judge does in deciding the motion. And then if appeals happen, see what happens there. Um, it's rare that they go to trial if there has been proper motion practice. So 240 subdivision one is where you're gonna find the most interesting fact patterns. Some of you are thinking, well, how much height is needed? You know, obviously if someone falls from 20 feet, that's a, that's a big gravity related height injury. Uh, what if someone falls off a curb and gets injured? A curb that's six inches, is that height related? What if someone's standing up on the edge of a dumpster trying to put some garbage debris in and falls off the edge of the dumpster? Is that high enough? What if it's the bottom rung of a ladder? What if it's the top rung of a ladder? Well, there's no easy answer to this, folks. Um, you're gonna have to research the facts of your specific case. You're gonna argue it the best you can. You're gonna see which department you're in. And you're gonna see in your department, if someone falls from a curb, 
Are they gonna hold that under 240 subdivision one? Probably not. If they're on the edge of a, tra of a garbage uh, dumpster and fall, they probably will. Uh, what if someone falls somewhere in between? I don't know. Uh, there's all kinds of unusual fact patterns that come up in these cases, but that's where the real skill of a lawyer comes in. That's why when you're handling these cases, you have to go through the entire industrial code. You have to research all similar types of cases, find those cases that are just like yours. In my lift case that we'll talk more about where Gary fell, I found every single case where a lift tipped over in the state of New York that was uh, argued to one of the appellate divisions. And I so found out their holdings and what the basis was and how they ruled. And, and that's how you start to craft your argument. And you're going to want to do all of that homework uh, before you uh, file your summons and complaint. And certainly before you do your depositions, so you can try and get the proper um, evidence through the questions you ask or the documents you request uh, to form the basis of your motion practice, whether you're defending or arguing. Just a short example, if you're defending this case, you're going to ask the plaintiff, were you told to wear a harness? And if they say, yeah, why didn't you? Well, you know, it got in the way. I couldn't do my work. It was in the way. You're going to be pretty happy if uh, you're the defendant and you get that testimony. If you're a plaintiff, you're going to want to ask, did you tell them to wear a harness? No, I figured they, they should know to do it. I never directed them to. That's good testimony also. You're going to want to ask all kinds of questions that we'll talk about when we get to the part on depositions in a few months. All right, so with one minute left, um, I just want to uh, say that we're going to go to the Q&A that next month on October 5th, uh, we're gonna be talking about the investigation you wanna do at the beginning of these cases uh, and commencing the action, how to plead it. And uh, if you have not listened, uh, check out my mentor podcast. You can catch all the prior CLEs I've done and even get credit uh, by listening. You could also go onto the Academy's website. If you're not a member of the Academy, please, please, please join. What are you waiting for? Come on, it's not that expensive. You get so many more benefits other than just the CLEs. Uh, and if we haven't met for a one-on-one -on -one yet, please go to uh, the Mentor ESQ website and uh, let's meet. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD972. Again, that's POD972. All right, thanks. And uh, thank you for sticking around. Obviously, look, there's a lot to unpack here in the labor law and to try and cover uh, 200, 241 sub six and 240 subdivision one all in an hour is pretty much an impossible task, but hopefully it gave you the overview. I gave you the materials so at your own pace. You can start looking through it, uh, try and get an understanding, do some of your own homework, uh, but it's sort of hopefully uh, you got the, the broad uh, overview of the different uh, statutes that apply and what we'll be talking about as we continue on in the parts ahead. So I'm going to go through some of the Q&As. I'll go through them all as best I can and try and answer them. Uh, and so stick with us. Uh, you can even pick up another half credit. You can always reach out to me directly. My email is behind me uh, up on the screen here. And uh, I'm always happy to speak either in a one-on-one -on -one Zoom or email or phone call with you. All right, so uh, Judge Heyman, uh, please get that article of yours and any others to Michelle. So if anybody would like some of those articles, they can follow up with Michelle and uh, Judge Heyman will get them to her, but they're great to read, give you an idea of different cases and the holdings and the different departments, the Court of Appeals. 
Um, there's a question on whether an architect or an engineer can be responsible under Section 200. I don't believe they can unless you can show control and direction of the work. So if there are hands-on at the scene controlling and directing the work, yes, if they just drew up the plans and gave them and they weren't on site and not anymore involved, then no, they're not going to be proper defendant and they're not going to be liable under the labor laws. Um, yeah, in a worker's compensation, there's a lot of uninsured subcontractors. Um, Joanne's commenting and uh, there's usually third party proceedings. It's a great point. What will generally happen is you will file your lawsuit against the owner and the general contractor then the owner and general contractor will usually third party in the plaintiff's employer uh, because you can't sue the employer as a plaintiff, you're barred by workers' compensation. But usually that's what will happen. Uh, and usually if the, if the contractor and owner uh, did it properly and had proper counsel, they will have an indemnification agreement and making sure that there's coverage for this incident by the employer. And so they'll put the pressure on your client's employer to pay uh, to settle the case. It's sort of an end around that happens. But oftentimes, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a lot of litigation going on between the owner, general contractor against your client's employer, the subcontractor who is at fault and not making sure your, their employee was safe, uh, but they're not living up to their indemnification contract or covering the incident. Uh, so there's a lot of ancillary litigation that can really hold up your case. So as a plaintiff, don't be shy about speaking with your adversary and finding out how they're making out on their third party proceeding and what you can do to get involved and help and work the phones, because that's ultimately how you get these cases resolved. Okay. Um, Nicola is asking about case law with a split amongst the departments on whether summary judgment can be granted on a 241 sub six. I am not aware of any recent case law. If anyone else is, please put it in there. Uh, I'm certainly aware that you can get summary judgment on 241 subdivision six, uh, but again, it then becomes part of the damages case uh, to argue contrib uh, or causation if the defense wants to. It's not absolute liability. All right. Uh, Payne uh, is asking, do you have to establish the subcontractor's violation of the industrial code that they were negligent, uh, that a violation isn't per se negligence? Um, I believe if you can establish uh, that it is per se negligence, that you establish a violation of the statute, uh, and that's part of 241 subdivision six, and that's exactly why you make the motion, that it is per se negligence. And you do not need to show that um, it was a subcontractor's negligence, you just need to show that the condition existed. For example, in a case where somebody falls into a pit that is not properly secured, I've had several of these cases. A worker is carrying a beam. They're walking across plywood on a site. They just think it's plywood on the ground that's being used for making, making something at the job. And little do they know that there's a whole pit underneath and they step on it and it does an endo. Person goes down into the pit and gets badly injured. You don't have to say it was negligent that they were supposed to do X, Y, and Z and this is whose job it was. You just have to show that it wasn't properly secured under the industrial code, part 23, you cite the section, and then the owner and the general contractor are going to be liable. Uh, it's a non-delegable duty. You do not need to establish actual negligence of the subcontractor, even though that's likely what caused it, okay? And again, if all you get is some form of negligence, then it, and it's not really doesn't fall into a concrete provision 
of 241.6 and it's not a 240 case, that's what you have your 200. You're just arguing negligence of one of the contractors uh, at the job site caused your client's injury. All right, uh, Quinn Yu is asking, who's considered an owner between a landlord and a tenant? And a, and a tenant? And how do you establish notice under 200 or general negligence? Well, a tenant, uh, unless they own, uh, if there's a landlord, the, the working theory of your question is the tenant uh, pays the landlord to live there, so they're not the owner. They're just a tenant. The landlord would be the owner. Um, the owner is the person who has the deed to the property. Uh, this is important, and we'll talk about it in the next part. Uh, when you're about to file a summons and complaint and you want to make sure you're naming all the proper parties, uh, which we'll talk about, it's really important, you want to make sure you have the proper owner. And that's not always easy to find out who owned the property. Sometimes there's a building there. Sometimes it's just a, a site that the work is being built on. So you need to find the deed to that property. Uh, and you either do it online, you have your investigator pull it, but always get the deed to the property and use the owner on that deed to establish the owner and allege that entity as the owner. And we'll talk about in pleading, you can always allege more than one owner. Uh, and then notice under general negligence would be, let's say uh, a co uh, a general contractor is walking by and sees something and they don't do anything about it to repair it. And you can show that they had a duty to, and they saw it, then that's notice, they saw it. It's negligent not to do something. So that's your negligence. That's your 200 if it doesn't fall within 241.6 and 240 subdivision one. Um, Payne is saying that uh, Cornell has an indexed version. Yeah, I think that may have been where I got my original one. Uh, oh, look, Payne posted it. That's awesome. Thank you. So everyone should immediately click on the link that Payne was kind enough to post. Uh, Cornell has the industrial code. It's indexed. It's searchable keep it on your desktop and you get a fact pattern in, do your homework, very easy to find out, all right? Um, Wilbur Ramos is talking about uh, reading Brian Shute's articles in the Law Journal. Brian Shute is a scholar in this area and is extremely knowledgeable. I used to go to some of his presentations where he would give a fact pattern and ask everybody in the room, raise your hand if you think it's a 240 subdivision one case, if they granted it for the plaintiff, raise your hand if you think it's not and they granted it for the defendant. And nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, it was split up all over the place in the room and cases that everybody thought they knew for sure they did, they were wrong. Or, and the ones they didn't think were they were right. I mean, it was it, it's all over the place. All right. Um, Next, Nancy, my views on the New York State allegedly strict liability statute, many case against owner's deep pockets seem to be reversed on appeal. Well, that's always come down to fact base. It is absolute and strict liability. Oftentimes they're reversed on appeal because they may find that it's a sole proximate cause issue. They may find that uh, the type of work being done doesn't comply with the statute. So again, if you can make a great argument and convince everyone that you've got all the factors that you need to make your case, you're going to get it. And it is strict liability. Um, when the cases are getting reversed, uh, that's because they're saying, no, I think this was sole proximate cause or nope, I don't think they're an owner. Or, no, this wasn't the type of renovation work that the statute contemplated or no, this isn't the type of height related or gravity related accident that we think should apply. So that's usually um, where these reversals come into play. 
Uh, and yes, Andrew, a 240 subdivision one case is always some sort of elevation, elevation or height related case. That is correct. Um, Nissim is asking, what section applies when an unsecured ladder falls on top of a worker who's not using the ladder? Good question. Uh, I would have to look, I don't know off the top of my head, maybe somebody else here can point them to it. I'm pretty sure that the industrial code has specific provisions on ladders. Uh, so you'd wanna search up ladders and, and look and see every which one. And uh, also look at the case law on ladders which fall. Again, was this ladder just propped up and sort of tipped? Did the bottom of it hit? Was it hiked up on the side of something and it fell all the way down? because it wasn't secured properly. Again, it's going to be a very detailed fact analysis in all of these cases. Uh, Stephen, I understand the labor law protects workers. Can violations of the industrial code also protect non-workers, such as an injured passerby? Um, good question. So I, it's, it's meant to protect workers, all right? Uh, that is how it works. So if you read the this, this statutes, they talk about uh, the protection required for the performance of that labor, okay? So if it's a pedestrian walking by and something falls, then you're arguing a negligence case. They failed to secure it, okay? Uh, that's what it is. But there's not strict liability applied to um, lay people. Uh, again, these laws are specific to protect workers. That's what this is for. Uh, but we've had a lot of cases where things fall off buildings and hit people on the street. Uh, and those are not 240 cases, but they're usually pretty good negligence cases, uh, especially you can use a lot of the language saying, you know, you're supposed to secure things that are being hoisted. You're familiar with these laws uh, and you can argue it that way. Uh, Judge Heyman, Judge George, always uh, shout out is well-deserved. Thanks for all your work and your scholarly efforts in this area. Um, okay. Uh, William Jaffe, hey there. Uh, I believe that even if a worker fell into a hole but does not fall completely through, Rule 240 would apply. But if you fell 10 feet as stated, uh, 240 would. So maybe you're saying one wooden and one would. Again, these are all going to be fact specific. So yeah, so let's say someone falls through an opening but catches themselves. And maybe in catching themselves on the edge dislocates a shoulder. Is that a 240 case? I'd certainly argue it is, uh, but it would all depend on how it plays out. Okay, uh, Adam, Adam Scheinbach, classmate from Brooklyn Law School. What's up, Adam? All right, if the homeowner hires a GC, am I correct in saying the homeowner gets the exemption, but the GC is still a 240 defendant for a single ham family home? So no, even if there's a GC on a single family home, it is not a 240 case. One and two family homes, uh, there is no 240 liability. Um, so just by hiring a general contractor, and there's a general contractor working at a one family home, that does not kick in the statute. The exemption applies to one and two family homes. The GC, you could still argue, um, you know, was negligent. Um, I guess, you know what, I had a case like this. I may want to correct myself. Yeah, so if there is a GC working on the job and you can show there was a violation of 240 that the GC was supposed to oversee, then I'm going to reverse myself. Yes, I believe you can make a 240 argument against the GC. I did have a case like that. You cannot against the homeowner. That's right, when you read the uh, statute, 
It says all contractors and owners and their agents, except owners of one and two family dwellings who contract for, but do not direct the work. So yes, GCs uh, directing work on a one or two family home, they can be held liable under 240. Thanks for that good question to clarify that. Uh, Gary is asking, is an architect or an engineer working for an owner, an agent under the scaffold law? Uh, generally not. Uh, I've not seen that. Uh, we try and make those arguments, but you would have to show uh, serious involvement. I mean, if they're working for the owner hand in hand, um, maybe you can try and make that argument. Generally to get any architect or engineer involved, you're gonna have to establish factually a significant amount of control over the work. I don't believe they're gonna be the type of agent that is contemplated as an owner or step into the shoes of an owner, okay? Alex, hey, Alex, uh, you're saying, I know that the construction code requires, uh, depending on the stories, uh, site safety supervisor, uh, but how are you, I, I read this earlier, you're basically saying, should they have more than one? What if it's a 50 story building? Is one site safety supervisor enough? Uh, my understanding is there is no requirement about the amount of site safety supervisors you're required to have. And I have had cases against big, big uh, you know, skyscrapers that are being built. Uh, and they'll usually have one site super per shift and they can usually cover it because work's not being done on all 50 stories on all floors at all times. So as long as they're doing their job right, and again, that's up to the GC and the owner, um, it's a non-delegable duty. If I'm running a project and I'm the owner or GC knowing what I know, I would be personally walking that property every day looking for potential violations and making sure they're fixed. I would be hiring multiple site safety supervisors. I'd be counseling companies like that to do so, but I don't think there is a, a requirement. I don't even think that there's a uh, specific requirement that a site safety supervisor be on site all the time. You can check me on that. I don't think there is, uh, but check me on it. But ultimately it's a non-delegable duty. So if they don't have one, that's a problem for them. All right, Kyle, how are you? For plaintiff's attorney, he's talking about, look at the case of Runner for New York Stock Exchange. Thank you, uh, Kyle. Everyone check that case out, pull it up and read it. Kyle is asking, can a plaintiff be a sole proximate cause of an injury in a 240 subdivision one case and not be a recalcitrant worker? Sure they can. So um, they may be doing everything they're told, uh, but then do something stupid. Uh, or so negligent that it can only be deemed the sole proximate cause. So um, let's say they uh, set up a, a scaffolding on an uneven elevation and it's set up with um, like woodchucks to keep it in place against each or locks on each tire. And let's say they uh, need to move the scaffolding. So they unclick the locks, they move the scaffolding and they go up on it. Uh, but they forget to lock it in place. And then uh, they go up and as they're going up and they're climbing up, it rolls and the worker falls. Uh, that might be an argument that that worker was the sole proximate cause. Everything was set up right, but for them deactivating in essence a safety device, um, this, they, they're the sole proximate cause, the accident would have happened, but they're not recalcitrant in that um, they're not failing to do something like wearing a protective device uh, that they're supposed to be wearing or failing to follow a direction. We'll talk about this more, but a little extra bonus stuff for those of you who are kind enough to hang in here with me. Um, 
you definitely, as a plaintiff's lawyer, when you're questioning every witness on the defense side of this case, all the contractors and site supers, you always want to ask the following question. Did you ever direct the plaintiff, cite the plaintiff's name, to do something uh, regarding safety where the plaintiff refused to do it? Can you give me any examples when that ever happened? No, not that I recall. Can you cite to any time you asked the plaintiff or told the plaintiff to uh, wear a protective device, they refused to do so? Did they refuse to do anything you told them to do? Did they ever not follow orders? So those are important questions because that's a good way to knock out uh, a recalcitrant argument, a recalcitrant worker argument if the motion is made. Okay. Um, Christine, if a complaint has an allegation based on labor laws to 220, I think you meant 200, 240, and 241.6, is a defendant entitled to interrogatories as well as a deposition? My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, those of you who are experts in, um, in civil practice procedure, is that um, in state court here in New York, you can't have interrogatories and a deposition. That is my general understanding. Again, someone, please, if you know the answer, uh, check me on that if I'm right or wrong. But I think they, as a defendant, you have a choice. It's either submit interrogatories or uh, conduct a deposition. I don't think you have both. Federal court, you obviously do. You can do interrogatories and depositions if you bring your case in federal court. Um, Nissim is asking, if the unsecured ladder is falling on top of the plaintiff, would I move under a theory of res ipsa loquitur? So res ipsa loquitur, uh, if you do not know what that refers to, is uh, something that happens, uh, but the only way it's going to happen uh, is as a result of negligence. So nothing else but for the defendant's negligence can cause it, and the particular defendant that you want to hold liable under the theory of res ipsa loquitur has to have sole control, Okay. Um, so you would have to show that whoever you're making this argument against with the ladder that fell had sole control of that ladder. What if some other worker took it and put it up there? What if somebody else had access to it? Um, what if a screw came loose that it was on that was put in by a prior worker? I mean, there's a lot of arguments to show that that is not uh, sole control and only can happen from negligence. Um, Ray Zipsa, I find, is pretty good sometimes in like surgical uh, medical malpractice cases where some uh, somebody gets their some organ sliced open with a scalpel, uh, and you can show that the client sedated and out of it, so the patient had nothing to do with it. The only sharp instrument in there was the scalpel being used by the surgeon, and the only way that you're slicing through an organ is as a result of negligence. That that to me would be a good raise ipsa loquitur argument. Okay, um, if two of three court of appeals uh, causes of action are dismissed on summary judgment. Does that qualify for an appeal of right or must a party file a motion for leave for an appeal? So you always have an appeal as a right on any cause of action uh, from the trial court judge. Uh, and then you go to the appellate division. Uh, whether or not you can appeal from the appellate division, uh, you either have to have a dissent uh, from the appellate division or you have to have leave. Uh, from the Court of Appeals or leave from the Appellate Division to go to the Court of Appeals. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, Jennifer is asking the differences between 200 and common law negligence. Are there any? In my opinion, not really. Technically, there probably are because it, at least it is a statute 
Common law negligence is not statute-based, so you are citing to a statute. You can use the language of the statute at the time of trial to be charged to the jury. Uh, it does specify that you're addressing uh, laborers and workers. So to that extent, they're a little bit different, uh, but in theory, how they play out, um, 200 has always played out as basically same argument you have to make of negligence, but just in a construction accident setting, okay? Okay. Uh, all right, Payne uh, is given some sites here. Thank you so much. Uh, Payne is our resident researcher today and scholar, so thanks for giving all of these uh, cases there for everybody. Uh, Daniel is asking, um, are the appellate divisions and the Court of Appeals upholding insurance contracts that exclude 240 claims? So that's a really good question. Um, what I'm running into a lot is we'll handle uh, labor law cases that are maybe outside of New York City, smaller jobs, not really union jobs. A lot of day laborers are hired by an owner of maybe a condominium complex, hires a GC to you know, redo all the decks and the subcontractors come in and nobody has scaffoldings on and, and it's really a mess. And then when we start bringing the case, uh, yeah, the owners have indemnification contracts from the subcontractors, but then when you look at this shady subcontracting deck company uh, that doesn't bring even harnesses or, or, or scaffolds for their workers to put these decks up at an elevation, you find out that they're getting these cheap insurance contracts that don't cover uh, elevation injuries. They don't cover even employees. They're meant to just cover lay people walking by. So I don't think it's a matter as to whether they uphold them. I think it's a matter of practicality. I mean, everybody's entitled two parties to a contract can agree on any language they want and someone can agree to get any insurance they want. They'll pay for cheaper insurance that covers less. So I don't think that there are cases, someone correct me if I'm wrong, please, but I don't think there's case law saying, no, no, you have to um, ensure that you can't exclude 240. I don't think that's happening. I think what you may be finding or hearing about is that there are contracts where there just is no coverage. And unfortunately that's, that ultimately ends up hurting uh, the plaintiff or perhaps the GC or the owner if the subcontractor doesn't have proper insurance. So certainly if I'm counseling owners and contractors doing this type of work, I'm making sure they're getting proof of a lot of insurance coverage from all of their subcontractors and all everybody on that job site. Okay. Uh, all right. Payne is putting up some more law. Thank you. All right. David's got something long up here. Let me take a look, David. Um, if a roof collapsed at a construction site, which had not been built as to code, does 23.1.7 protection from overhead hazards, um, does that qualify, I think you're saying? Yeah, I think it does. I, de I definitely think overhead hazard protection, I've used that before, is a concrete and specific uh, statute uh, and uh, provision rather uh, under 241 subdivision six. I think I can hit a few more. I'll just, I'll go through, go I'll go for, for a couple more minutes. Uh, so the questions, there's some Q and A uh, about the tenants being owners. And I thank you to uh, Patricia, uh, no, it was uh, Jason and Jeffrey um, talking about that where tenants have been held liable uh, under the labor law and they've been held to step into the shoes of the owner. And I can see how that can happen factually. So I can see that in a commercial environment. So let's say somebody owns a shopping center and let's say stop and shop 
uh, is a tenant of the shopping mall uh, and stop and shop uh, hires to have their own work done, maybe on their loading bay and all of that. Uh, I think you could have them in as the owner for purposes of that, along with the deed owner, if, uh, if that situation arises. So again, these are all really fact specific. Um, I was thinking more in the context of a tenant resident in a residential building, uh, you're probably going to find out that it's the landowner of that building uh, who would be liable and not a tenant, but probably commercial tenants can, can be found as owners. So thank you for pointing those out. Um, Patricia's asking what happens when a property has ownership interest by an industrial development agency. Not really sure what that means, but if it means, you know, let's say there's an interest in ownership or partial ownership from some out of possession entity, maybe an investor or someone else, uh, I guess it's going to be the details of that ownership. Uh, again, look to the deed. The deed usually has one company. So let's say it's Smiley Holdings LLC owns the building, but Smiley Holdings has Andrew Smiley, Michelle Stern. Uh, the academy, let's say we all have an ownership in it, uh, it's still going to be the entity on the deed, the Smiley Holdings, that's the owner, not the different owners of the holding company. So again, you got to look at the deed. It gets a little tricky sometimes. When in doubt, name everybody and let them sort it out. Uh, Andrew is asking, have I had any cool 240 subdivision two cases? Well, for starters, I had to look and see if that was a typo. If you meant 240 subdivision one, and I realized you meant 240 subdivision two, uh, the hanging scaffold case where the scaffolds are swaying. Um, you'll find those usually, I think, in bridge work when they're working under a bridge uh, and have a hanging scaffold. I, off the top of my head, unfortunately, I can't recall any cool ones. Uh, I'm sorry. I'd be happy to share if I did. I'll keep an ear out. If anybody else has, uh, please let Andrew know. Um, all right, Adam. Got you, man. Uh, Ross, uh, do single family garages give owner protection? How about barns? So it's funny you say that. I have that exact case that I'm just about to reject, unfortunately. I signed up a case that was out in a rural area where uh, a couple bought a property and they were developing it with a bunch of structures on the property, one that appeared to be a nice big barn. And our guy's up building it, subcontractor, he's on a roof and he falls and gets badly injured. Um, my research, which I'm just buttoning up now, seems to indicate that if it's just a one or two family uh, owner of that property, that the structures on that property fall within. So it doesn't just have to be a, a one or two family structure, but if the property is owned by only one family, even if there's multiple outbuildings on it, if it's one owner, it's no labor law case, unfortunately, for me and my client in this one. And I believe that's the applicable law um, in this situation. All right. Um, all right. Uh, let's go to commercial purpose. If part of a single or double family residence is being used for a commercial purpose, like an office, an Airbnb, can that impact the homeowner exception protection? I think it may. I think that's really fact-based. I've looked into that also, um, and I don't have a really clear answer to give you. I think if you have a situation where maybe the ground level of the two-family home is commercial, uh, if you can argue that it's commercial purposes, I think that could pull it out of the exception. But I, I look into the specifics of it. Um, I don't think an Airbnb in and of itself would do it. I think it's gotta be more, but again, it's gonna be fact-specific. Uh, all right, I'm going to finish off with one more. Um, let's see. 
Oh, thank you, Matthew. He's saying, correct, you don't do interrogatories and uh, depositions, so it's one or the other. Uh, someone in then Benjamin saying it's interrogatories or BP. You can have depositions and interrogatories. Well, here we go. Let's keep looking into that and see. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, someone saying, yeah, you could serve interrogatories. So uh, it seems, according to our group here, that you can do interrogatories and depositions. Again, I'm not the word on that, so check it out. So let me see if there's anything else that's one that I can uh, talk about. Oh, thank you. Jeff's putting up CPLR 3130. So that should give you your answer. When in doubt, look it up. Uh, I thank you all for all. It was great. You asked so many questions. We had over 70 questions here, which I love. Uh, a lot of good engagement. I hope you all stick with me. We got three more parts to come. Construction accident litigation is super interesting. You have so many fact patterns, uh, so many areas of law. It's very intellectual. It's, uh, it's very fact-based, uh, very interesting. And uh, I look forward to working with you all through parts two, three, and four. That'll bring us towards the end of this year, if you can believe it. Uh, welcome back. I hope everyone had a great summer. Uh, please reach out to me. Let's do a Zoom. Listen to my podcast. If you're listening to it now, uh, which it comes out about a week after every CLE, uh, I put it up on my podcast in addition to my interviews and my other pontificating uh, episodes. Uh, you can get CLE credits for, for anything that I do with the Academy. So uh, please do that. I always appreciate if you give me a nice review or like it on my podcast. It helps me uh, with the search engines. We all try and get what we can out of it. So thank you all. And I'll see you next month.